Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. So interesting thing is, again, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what are the biggest problems facing humanity, right? I mean, if you start to think about it and say, what is it that we fight over? We fight over land, we fight over water, we fight over energy big problems, right? We, you know, and you start to think about what are the things where we're spending, you know, a majority of our GDP in every country. And you start to say, oh, it's really healthcare and education, right? So any which you start to think about and saying, wow, these are really the big problems. And then here are some problems are more subtle than that, which is um, to large extent, every so often we get the reminder that all of us are living on this single spacecraft that we we lovingly call planet Earth. But our planet Earth is just a spacecraft flying around in the space. And imagine if our spacecraft gets hit by a large asteroid and our spacecraft gets damaged. Or we humans are pretty capable people, we could destroy it ourselves. And doesn't mean the planet won't survive. It is the species, the human species may not survive, right? So in a sense that could human species be, could become the dinosaurs? And the answer is it could because the reason the dinosaurs became dinosaurs because they didn't have the entrepreneurial dinosaur that could take them to moon and the Mars and beyond. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. 
It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Naveen, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Uh, it's an honor to be here, and I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually uh, was introduced to you by way of one of our mutual friends. I actually got to see you also speak at a conference, and I have been wanting to have this conversation for a very long time and really excited to talk to you. Um, so I want to start by asking you, what was the hometown that you grew up in, and what impact did where you grew up end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and your career? And, you know, I would say is that, um, you know, in terms of where you grow up has less to uh, do with uh, who you become. Um, and I think to some extent, <clears throat> very rarely uh, the town you're born in has much impact on your life as you move forward. Um, it's really about uh, as you start to move in the journey of your life, the people you surround yourself with more or less end up molding you to uh, become who you become. And you become an average of the five people that you're closest to. An interesting thing in life is that uh, it's not static. It's you're, you're a dynamic entity and your thought process is constantly changing based on uh, where you end up. So, you know, I may have been born in one place, but there is very little impact that had and who I uh, who I am today. And it's really, uh, as I said, every few years, four, five, ten years, you essentially make a leap forward uh, because suddenly you're surrounding yourself with a very different group of people that change your thought process, that change you how you look at life and that change how you look at what you can do in terms of giving back to the humanity. And all of that has uh, probably more impact on me in the last 10, 20 years, the people that I met than the first 10, 20 years of my life. Who are the people that you were surrounded by uh, in those first years of your life? And what were they like? Yeah. So first, you know, first of all, I don't have very many memories of my early childhood. Uh, and secondly, because we didn't really live in any place for more than uh, 12 to 18 months. Uh, you know, my father was in a uh, in a government job and we moved every 12 to 18 months. Uh, and for a number of different reasons, um, because we, you know, we were poor and but more importantly because my dad didn't want to take bribe and that meant he needed to be transferred because if he didn't take bribe his boss didn't get the bribe and many of those things combined we really never had a place we called home in any city and you know to large extent um, you know now rethinking my answer I would say the the best benefit that I got was not the place that I was born but the fact that I was moving every 12 to 18 months uh, the change became the norm and really being comfortable with the change and being comfortable with the new environment really shaped who I am. So anytime I'm put in a new situation or the new environment, it doesn't seem daunting. It doesn't seem something that uh, you know takes a lot of effort to get used to because that is something uh, I grew up with. Mm -hmm. How do other people develop that capacity to adapt to new environments quickly? 
Uh, I mean, part of it is, uh, I would say, it's called self-love. Uh, and, and what I really mean is not mean by self-obsessed, but really falling in love with yourself where you're not looking for someone else's approval. And that is the key. Is Key is not to be so self-centered and self-obsessed, but really be comfortable in your own skin that when you stop looking for a- approval of others, you can continue to move forward in the things you believe in rather than constantly looking for uh, someone to tell you that the path that you have chosen is the right path. Hmm. That's interesting. Uh, you know, both of us being of Indian descent, um, I think we both come from cultures where it's very natural for uh, kids to to seek the approval of their parents. There are certain things that you are validated for culturally. I think in in the culture that we grew up in, uh, was there a point at which you came to this realization? And is it something that uh, you only came to with age, or is this how you felt even growing up very early in your life? Well, it's hard. I mean, Srini, that's really, really hard to think about way back when. And you are still a young kid, so you can probably remember a whole lot more <laughs> than I can at this point. But I'm, I want to answer your question uh, that you mentioned about the kids and the parents. Yeah. Interesting thing is about parenting is that every child, it doesn't matter what part of the world they are born in, uh, whether they're born in uh, U.S. or Germany or India or China. Interesting thing is the kids always want to make the parents proud. And your job as parents really is to let them know what makes you proud of them. Um, And I think, you know, to some extent, we can talk a little bit more about because we do have three children who have been just amazing, amazing things that they're doing. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, go back and look back and say, what got us there? And to some extent, there's always a lot of luck. At the same time, there were things that we did which were counterintuitive. Number one was we always separated uh, uh, the thing about us loving them and us approving of them. So I always told them that you never, ever have to second guess, do we love you? But you always have to always wonder if we approve of the things that you are doing. And those are two separate things. That means we told them what makes, uh, you know, what makes us proud of them. So I would tell them, I say, you know, uh, what success is not about how much money you have in the bank. Success comes from how much, how many lives you've been able to improve on. The success is about, uh, you know, really building that self-worth. And the self-worth only comes from not what you own. Self-worth comes from what you create. And if you own a lot, but you haven't created anything, you're still a parasite on society. And if, if pardon my thing, you're really still a piece of shit. Right? <laughs> so the point is, if you own a lot, but you haven't really done anything, you haven't created anything, you still are not contributing to the society. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing is, the, uh, the day you become humble is the day you know you've become successful. Because if you still have iota of arrogance left in you, then you're still trying to prove something to yourself or someone else. And that will never be a success. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I remember you talking about parenting and uh, you sharing this insight with uh, people on stage at Archangel. And it really struck me. Uh, and one of the things I, I was thinking about as I knew we were going to have this conversation is uh, – what have you found has changed about the way that you're parenting your kids from the way that your parents parented you? Like, what did you find that they did that you think they shouldn't have done? And what were the valuable lessons that came from them that you have imparted to your kids? I really don't think it is right even a 
fair comparison because, you know, the society is changing at such a fast pace. And the opportunities that are ahead of each one of us are so different than I don't think, think I don't even think it is fair to compare. For example, um, you know, if parents in our, our parents' generation wouldn't even think about a potentially a child becoming an entrepreneur because that just option wasn't available, right? So in a sense that, um, you know, growing up, it's not something you wake up in the morning and say you can go start a company that just wasn't there. Uh, whereas today, uh, the exponential technology is making it possible for individuals and a very small group of people to do the things that only the superpowers could do before. That means you and I have a, a potential to be able to use the technology and require very little financial resources to go out and land on the moon, to go out and solve the problem of healthcare, to go out and solve the problem of education. We are the ones and individuals that can go out and create abundance of energy, the abundance of food and the abundance of water. And it takes one person with a mission to make it possible. Right. And that was never there before. To large extent, we have to see and create opportunities for our children and allow them to make mistakes. And one of the things that I would say that if I have to rethink is that in our parents' generation, um, failing was if you did something and if it didn't work out, that was considered as a personal failure. And uh, and I think in our new world, the, the definition of failure is simply giving up. That means the ideas that you uh, uh, start with may or may not work, but you only fail when you give up. Everything else is simply a stepping stone to a different idea and a bigger idea. And that mindset is really something new uh, from our parents' generation where there used to be a stigma. Oh, my God, can you believe he started this company and that company did not work out, as opposed to saying, oh, you know how much she learned at this such a young age to be able to learn a business, and that gives him a plenty good foundation for him to be build a great business the next time, right? Mm -hmm. And that is really wasn't there. And I think to a large extent may have been culturally, it was definitely not there uh, uh, in our part of the world in India. And at that time, it was not considered kosher to be doing something that you don't succeed at. But now, you know, you start to think and saying the most successful successful people in life uh, only become successful by actually missing out on many of the attempts that they make. Mm -hmm. and, and at the times when you absolutely believe that you don't want to fail, you always end up sub-optimizing in terms of what, uh, what you can potentially do. So let me give you the more of a... And my attempt at a, a sports analogy. So I never used to watch sports or play sports. And at one point of time, I end up owning a, uh, ended up owning an NBA team called Supersonics in Seattle with our friend Howard Schultz. And I watched the games from the front line. And I saw some of the best players in those days, Kobe Bryant. And I saw him in games where he would take only four or five shots. All four or five will go in. And at the end of the day, he would have about 10 points on the board. And other nights, he would take 50 shots, miss half of them, and he will have 50 or 60 points on the board. And that really is, to me, some extent, is life, which is, 
if you are not comfortable missing half the shots that you take, you'll always be a 10-point man. That means if you get comfortable that you want to make sure that every shot that you take goes in, you'll always be a 10-point man. You can never dream of becoming a 50 or 60-point man because that requires for you to be comfortable that half the times you're going to try, you're going to completely miss it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting to to hear you talk about this from a cultural perspective because one of my friends asked me uh, a similar question about you know how do you reconcile the fact that you grew up in this culture with these expectations of following a very traditional career path. And for the longest time, I fought it and I thought my parents did something wrong. But then I, I started to think about it and I realized in that day and age, uh, the downsides to to the risk if you fail was not, oh, you know what, uh, something didn't succeed, I can go find myself a job. If you put years into something and you failed, the downside was extreme poverty. Um, the consequences were very severe. So it made me suddenly have a, a much deeper appreciation for why my parents chose the paths they chose and why they made the decisions they did. Well, that is absolutely true. Uh, that's absolutely true. <clears throat> the time, that's what I was talking about. The times have changed so significantly uh, that it is really not fair to compare, uh, uh, you know, uh, their generation to our generation, or for that matter, our parenting style to someday when you, <laughs> you and I become the grandparents <laughs> to our children's parent, our children's parenting style. Mm-hmm. Can't imagine becoming a grandparent, but you know, <laughs> that too, that too will happen. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Um, just out of curiosity, uh, you owned an NBA team. What prompted your interest in buying a sports franchise as somebody who doesn't like sports uh, or didn't watch sports? It's funny because my ongoing joke was if I had a billion dollars, one of the things I would do is buy a sports franchise, even though I don't watch sports but play sports video games religiously. So I'm sorry, it's a long story. And then, you know, it is one of those things that I did it because, um, uh, you know, <laughs> Howard came to me one day and said, hey, we should buy this team. And I th- I just thought maybe some software company were acquiring and we said, let's go, <laughs> let's go for it. <laughs> we have no idea that it was a basketball team. So, but, you know, for that, that is stories for some other day. <laughs> okay, not a problem. Um, um one of the things that I, I was really curious about is what your first sort of entrepreneurial experience was growing up. Like, how did you earn your first dollar from something that was created from your own efforts? Yes, I think I think this is a great time for me to start pivoting uh, the yeah. interview into something where I think I can deliver the most value to the audience here. And the less I focus on myself, sure. the better it is going to be for the audience. Because I think... <clears throat> I just want people to start thinking about what does it take to become a successful entrepreneur and what I have learned um, in the last 30, 40, 35 years of uh, essentially running seven seven ventures and um, knock on the word, every one of them have been widely successful. So what are the lessons that I learned uh, from it? And I just want to impart some of those things. To me, uh, you know, as I, you know, we briefly touched at the end part that success, what the success is, but how do you go? How do you get there? <clears throat> so one of the interesting thing is um, almost everyone tell you that you know building an amazing team together is the first step. That how do you get? Uh, how do you put together an amazing team that's going to help you achieve the dream that you set out to do? And interesting thing is when you're looking for a friend, you want someone who is just like you. But when you're trying to put together an entrepreneurial venture, you want 
to be working with people who are very unlike you because you want to get the complementary skill. So if you are that vision guy who is just sees where the things are. You want someone who doesn't care about the vision. Your job is to cut the trees and the person who may be your partner, the job is to keep building the road behind you, who doesn't even know why you're cutting the tree and where you're going, but says, look, I trust you. You, As long as you're cutting the trees, I'm building the road behind you, right? And that complementary skill is what allows you to build a team that individually are the best at what they do, but not i not same as you because you don't want someone else who is simply the rara guy and nobody behind you is building the foundation of the things that need to be built, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, second thing is that most entrepreneurs die from uh, what I would say indigestion rather than starvation. That means always trying to do too many things rather too few things. That people win by keeping the focus. People need to understand that you cannot open up too many battlefronts. You win one battle at a time. Do the things that are most important and focus on it. So the focus really becomes the key. And a lot of the entrepreneurs are so fascinated by ideas or technology, which is really is the another downside of why people fail. They get so caught up in the technology they have, they start to, it's like a technology looking for a solution. Rather than starting to say, what is the problem I'm trying to solve? In many of the people who come from engineering background say, I have built this technology. Now they're trying to figure out how do you apply this technology to anything that they can find, right? So if you have a hammer, you're constantly looking for a nail, even though it's not a nail, but you think it's a nail. Mm-hmm. So I always start with a thing saying, what is the problem that is big enough that you want to dedicate your life to? And the reason I say is it's easier to solve a big problem than to solve a smaller problem. It takes, you know, same amount of effort, but it's so much easier to recruit the best talent when you are focused on a big problem than if you're focused on a smaller problem. So when it comes down to, uh, you know, in terms of um, the, you know, journey that you're taking, you need to know that purpose that you have is a worthwhile purpose. So God forbid, if you are actually successful in doing what you're doing, uh, how would it help a billion people? Because it's really easy to create a multi-billion dollar company if you know the product or service that you're building is going to be able to help a billion people. It's really easy to make a billion dollar company if you're solving a $10 billion problem, right? Mm -hmm. So so the thing is really to always focus on that on day one, that assume you're going to be successful would it, would the things that are, uh, you're working on, are they scalable? And I think a lot of the times people, to some extent, don't believe they're going to be successful and they start building things and they suddenly achieve success and they fail because they don't know what to do with it now because they never expected to succeed, mm-hmm. right? So in a sense that, for example, you would go out things that require infrastructure, requires people, and suddenly you succeed. And now you say, well, I can't go hire 100,000 people. This is this is absolutely stupid. This needs to be shut down, right? <clears throat> or you stay small because now it's non-scalable. So people become consultant and, you know, and they succeed, but they don't know how to scale because that can always be a small business because they never, ever assume they're going to be successful. Because if you are going to be thinking that you're going to be 
successful, then you start on day one building the underlying technology that if you do succeed, it can automatically scale to millions or billions of people. That means you'll always move away from being the center to essentially making yourself available in a virtual world where you can scale virtually uh, to millions of people. <laughs> Go ahead, Ashwin. Do you think that uh, everybody is destined to uh, you know, build companies that serve a billion people? Um, the reason I ask this is because you know you have on the flip side of this people who are artists and creators who have provided a tremendous amount of value for the world. Like you look at th- things that people like Seth Godin do. Um, not scalable to a billion people necessarily, but we can't question that you know uh, he provides a tremendous amount of value to a lot of people. First of all, I don't know who Seth Gordon is, so I, you, have, you have a whole lot more advantage on me. That okay. <laughs> so is he an artist or is he a… He's a uh, writer. He's a marketing thought leader. He, he has a blog. He teaches his courses. He speaks. He does a bunch of different things. And so you have a lot of businesses like this these days. Um, no, so, no, but don't get me wrong. Those are perfectly scalable businesses, but you have to think differently. Yeah. That means now the technology allows us to reach billion people. You do not need to be physically in every place to be able to get your message across. And that's exactly what I mean, is that the fact you are able to write a book that can reach millions of people without you being there, the fact you are able to create a a virtual program that can be watched and uh, be and, and you can inspire and educate billions of people it, without you having to be physically there, right? And those are all scalable. What's not scalable is to say, I only way I know how it works is when I do one-on-one coaching. Right. That is not, not scalable. Yeah. But if message can be spread digitally, that's scalable. Mm. Um, so two two questions come from this. Uh, yeah. in, one of the things mm-hmm. that I have heard over and over and over again in hundreds of interviews uh, is that one of the most difficult things to do as a, a CEO, as a founder, is to manage your own psychology. Uh, that that battle is far greater than anything that you're going to face externally. So two questions come from that. Uh one, if you know there were any low points in your journey of getting to where you're at, uh, what were they and how did you pull out of them? And what is your advice to people about managing their psychology? Because I can't imagine it doesn't play a huge role in your ability to do what you do. So, you know, I think the people who spend too much time thinking about uh, the past or thinking about the future. So that means people who have a lot of hindsight they're trying to get or a lot of foresight tend to miss out on the eyesight, uh, which is what's right in front of them. So, you know, to me, I never looked at anything as a failure other than simply as a, a a learning opportunity that one has had. So to me, as we discussed, failure only happens when you give up. You know, life is, life of an entrepreneur is like a heartbeat. Uh, And the only way you know you are alive is when it's going up and down. So there is this uh, beat that goes up and the beat that goes down. If the things are in a smooth line, then you know you're already dead. You just don't know about it yet, right? So if your if your life is completely smooth, you're just essentially living a zombie life. Um, and the interesting thing about the life, the you know, the heartbeat is when you are at the bottom of that beat. All you have to do is know that if you can last this winter, you know, the summer is coming. The next beat is going to be up. 
And that really knowing that these the good times don't last forever and the bad times don't last forever. So knowing when you're at the bottom of the beat, knowing the next beat is up. And when you are at the top of the beat, knowing that you can get too cocky because the next beat is coming right down. So keep your friends close to you because you'll need them when you're going down, right? Mm -hmm. And that really is the key to success in life is to know that you have to anticipate the ups and downs. You have to enjoy that journey that it is going to be ups and downs. And you will learn a lot more about yourself and the people around you when things are down, when the things are good. Because in good times, it doesn't matter how how much of a moronic decision you make, it turns out to be good. But when times are tough, every decision you make changes everything. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, it's interesting because you've talked about issues in particular that can help a billion people and solving $10 billion problems. So that raises a couple of different questions. How do you choose the issues that you want to tackle? And what, what in particular do you to uh, space education and healthcare? Yeah. So interesting thing is, again, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what are the biggest problems facing humanity, right? I mean, if you start to think about it and say, what is it that we fight over? We fight over land, we fight over water, we fight over energy, big problems, right? We, you know, and you start to think about what are the things where we're spending you know, a majority of our GDP in every country. And you start to say, oh, it's really healthcare and education, right? So any which you start to think about and say, wow, these are really the big problems. And then here, some problems are more subtle than that, which is uh, to large extent, every so often we get the reminder that all of us are living on this single spacecraft that we, we lovingly call planet Earth. But our planet Earth is just a spacecraft flying around in the space. And imagine if our spacecraft gets hit by a large asteroid and our spacecraft gets damaged. Or we humans are pretty capable people, we could destroy it ourselves. And doesn't mean the planet won't survive. It is the species, the human species may not survive, right? So in a sense that could human species be, could become the dinosaurs? And the answer is it could because the reason the dinosaurs became dinosaurs because they didn't have the entrepreneurial dinosaur that could take them to moon and the Mars and beyond, right? So unless we think there is, we want to be that species that did not last, we have to start thinking about how do we become a multi-planetary society and how do we save the humanity from potential extinction? And that's the reason I started this company called Moon Express. And as you know, it's the only company in the universe that has a permission to leave Earth orbit and land on any celestial body. And obviously, the, even though one could argue, is the Mars a better place to settle down than the moon is? And is there you know, other planets that might be better for human, and the humans to move to? And the answer is yes, yes, and yes. The thing is, you still have to learn to live away from the planet Earth. And once you are able to learn to live away from the planet Earth, you can go somewhere else. The problem of living on the moon and the problem of living on the Mars are very similar. In both cases, there is a, a massive amount of radiation. In both cases, there is a vast temperature difference. In, in both cases, there is uh, you know, at least reduced gravity. And if you can find a way to live in high radiation, then you can live anywhere. And the good thing is, Every problem that you see is simply an opportunity for an entrepreneur to find a great business around it. Um, interesting thing is, like, if you think about the radiation, 
we find that nature has solved many of these problems already. We find the bacteria growing in the radioactive nuclear waste. And what that really means is that nature has figured out how to protect its DNA uh, from high radiation. And not only that, it has also figured out how to use the radiation as a source of energy. And that means now if we can take the genes from this bacteria and use the CRISPR, which is a genetic editing technology, and modify the human genes in vivo, uh, that means uh, as inside the human body, and you are able to now not only become the radiation resistant, you may no longer require the food to be grown to, uh, to get the energy for you to survive. What if uh, in the evening, all you have to do is go out for a walk with your honey and get the radiation instead of getting a pizza? And that solves the problem of how do we grow the food in these, pl these places, right? So you have to start thinking about all of the possibilities. Every time you see a problem, Think of that as an opportunity for you, someone to create a business around it. And you can go talk about almost every one of those issues. Uh, how do we go about solving a problem of, say, fresh water? Hmm. Interesting thing is, we all believe the lack of fresh water on planet Earth is one of the big problems, right? And you say, well, I think I can go out and start to build some type of nano filters that's going to go out and take a dirty water and clean it. Um, I can go out and start to desalinize through many of the matter materials that could be used uh, for desalination. Uh, or you can start to think about what is, why is this problem exists? What is the root cause of lack of fresh water? And very soon you will realize that majority of the fresh water is used in agriculture. And then you say, oh, if agriculture is where the most of the water is being used, can we build efficient agriculture? Can we create aquaponic agriculture? Can we create hydroponic agriculture? And that will re require less use of water and that will free up the water for, uh, for the people. And you feel pretty good until you start to think about where does all this agriculture is going? And you start to realize that majority of the agriculture is actually used to feed the cattle. And you say, oh, wow, that means if we are growing the agriculture simply to feed the cattle and people really want to eat the meat, can we solve that problem by simply taking a stem cell from a cow and growing only the muscle tissues that people want to eat? No reason to grow other organs that people are not going to eat. I mean, if people are not eating eyes and whatever else, the things in the body, then why grow them? Only grow just the muscle tissues that people want to eat. And if you do that, Suddenly, you start to see a freshwater problem becomes a synthetic biology problem. And once you start to create a plenty of food simply through a, a biology, synthetic biology mechanism, now you have freed up all the agriculture that can be used to feed the human beings or, or the agriculture that we don't have to use that we use fresh water for. And suddenly, you start to solve the problem of fresh water, abundance of food, and also have a, enough food, whether it is are through synthetic biology creating meat or having more agriculture that we can feed people. Wow. So, right? so that's just one part of the things. Other thing is you start to think about and saying, how do we create abundance of energy? Now, we live on this planet where every 90 minutes there is more solar, solar energy falls on our planet than we use in the whole year. It's simply a matter of conversion. Now, go back 200 years ago. The the most precious metal used to be aluminium. 
despite the fact that our planet is full of aluminum and it was only in the form of bauxite, it was never in the pure form. And it used to be so expensive to extract aluminum from bauxite. It was so expensive so that even the tip of the Washington Monument is actually made of aluminum because we wanted to show the British as we have arrived. Right Now, aluminum became so cheap with the advent of electrolysis. So electrolysis is the technology that made uh, extraction of aluminum from bauxite so cheap that we throw it away. Now imagine what would be the electrolysis of solar energy. And as we get there, we would, we would have so much energy that it will become free. And people always say that we're going to always fight over things because we humans are so greedy. It doesn't matter how much we have. We're going to always fight over it. Until you start to think about that, we humans are actually not as greedy because 60,000 of us could sit in a stadium and all enjoy the same air without fighting over and slapping the guy next to us and say, hey, stop breathing my air. It's mine, right? Because we inherently believe that air and the oxygen that we breathe is in abundance and it has no value. It is democratic. Everyone in the world has it and it is freely available because demonetized. What if energy was the next air where it became democratic and it became demonetized? That means everyone has it and everyone gets it for free. And once you have abundance of free energy, even the dirtiest water can be distilled and you can have an abundance of free, clean water. Right. And my point is, you can go down and start to think about what about education? What about healthcare, And as we move on to the things, I'm going to talk about how do we create a solution for creating a next century education system? And how do we solve the problem of healthcare, where only industry, where the more money we spend, the sicker people are getting? So what's wrong with that picture? Um, I, I love that you brought up all of this. Uh, numerous questions sort of have arisen. Uh, I know that I've heard you talk a little bit about education, and I, I want to ask this question in a way that I've never asked it before, given the nature of your work. Uh, you know, I always jokingly have said I'm a failed byproduct of the education system. Uh, but the thing that I, I was really wondering is if you could design the educational institution of the future, what would it look like? Yeah. And what advice would you give to parents who are listening? Because we have a lot of parents who actually use the content from the show to homeschool their children. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more.
Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Yeah, so this is very interesting. So let's go back and say, is our education system actually broken? And the answer is absolutely not. Our current education system system is actually doing exactly what it was designed to do. So our education system was designed to teach us skills and and it was designed for the industrial era where you needed those skills. And once you learn those skills, you can use them for the rest of your life. And you had a very good, productive adult life. Uh, we now live in the world of exponential technologies. That means it doesn't matter what skill you learn, that skill becomes obsolete by the time you graduate. Hmm. And that is really the fundamental problem is that the world has moved away from a skill-based solution and unidisciplinary solutions to multidisciplinary and also and you know where the skills are no longer needed but what's more important is learning to learn and learning to solve problems learning to work work collaboratively and no longer the most solutions for problems are no longer unidisciplinary they're multidisciplinary right and that is the key that means our education system that was designed for one purpose that need doesn't exist and you know, and that the so the what how you need to create an education system for the next century. So anybody who's interested by that, I have written on it on a Forbes. So if you just type um, Naveen Jain education Forbes, you will see there are two articles. One uh, talks about how education system is now ripe for disruption, and the second article on the same uh, is really the about how to design the education system for the next century. And it really talks about that how one has to now change the role of the teacher instead of being a tape recorder about teaching you the things that uh, as a skills that can be learned through uh, adaptive software. That means that what if the software could adapt to how you learn rather than you having to adapt to how teacher teaches, right? So if you learn experimentally, you learn graphically, you, run con- you learn conceptually, all of those things could be adapted uh, in terms of how software will teach you. And the job of the teacher really becomes more of a mentor, more of a facilitator to about bringing the different set of problems and say, how would you go about solving it? In the world where Uh, we are given the multiple choice thing and we are always told that if you think there are more than one right answer, you are wrong, right? You always were taught to only have one right answer. And we all know intuitively when we get to work, there are more than one ways to skin that cat. There are more than one right answer to the problem, right? And that is never taught. People are taught to kill their creativity and taught that there is never more than one possibilities. And whereas, you know, it's very interesting is when the children are young, you can give them any problem and they're able to creatively come up with 10 different ways of solving it, right? And as we get older, we constantly become part of the system where we are told that every answer is wrong except one, right? Mm. So I think, you know, in terms of working collaboratively, in, in today's education system, when you ask someone, say, Srini, what do you think of this? The teacher says, oh, you are te- cheating, right? Mm-hmm. In in workplace, you are rewarded because now you're a team player, yeah. right? 
Right. So it's really the whole idea needs to be turned on its head of what it really means to work collaboratively, how it means to really bring people from multiple disciplines to come together to solve a problem, because rarely a problem uh, is a unidisciplinary problem. It's, it's interesting. Uh, you know, I've had a lot of educators here, people like Adam Grant, uh, Cal Newport, uh, and we, we've had a, a similar conversation. And of course, you know, many of them are college professors and my dad being a college professor. And sometimes what's interesting is, you know, when you talk to college professors and they say part of the challenge is there's no incentive within the system to change the system because college, you know, creates tenured professors and for them to change things could be incredibly disruptive. Um, what do you think is – given that we have the tools, we have the technology, we have the capabilities, and we know what it takes to make this change, why is it taking so long? And what role does you know, regulatory issues play in all of this? Uh, you know, what role does government play in all of this? And, and do you even think about the role of government in uh, this? Because I think one thing that has occurred to me as, I, as I've you know, looked at documentaries on, on education is that in the United States, education is a business. In almost every other country in the world, it's a service. Yeah. The interesting thing is, you know, I think you touched on so many different points that I want to at at least um, see if I can answer some of those questions. Number one thing is, uh, if you go to an expert, uh, they are very good at telling you why things won't work. And at best, once you become good at something, you mostly become useless at it. And what I mean by that is, at best, you can improve it incrementally. If you want to disrupt something, so if you want to change the, uh, uh, something um, 10 times, make it 10 times better or 100 times better, rather than making 10% better or, uh, or 15% better, you have to challenge the foundation of what people have taken it for granted. So it will never come from an expert. It will come from someone who's coming from outside the industry, looking in and applying the knowledge of some other industry into the industry that they're coming in. So if you notice that I have now started seven companies and no two companies that I have ever done are in the same industry. So you look at me attacking a space industry that is done by behemoths, right? People thought to land on the moon is going to be cost a billion dollars. And I was absolutely convinced we could do it for $100 million uh, because of the exponential technology is going to continue to bring the price curve down. It turns out that we are now ready to launch our mission later this year or early next year. The cost of us landing on the moon is going to be under $10 million. Think about that. So when I thought I was being 10 times more optimistic, I was actually 10 times pessimistic. And that is really the power of exponential technology. Mm. And the reason I was able to do that is because we never thought like a uh, other uh, aeronautical engineers who always believed that to land on the moon, you would require a massive rocket. We rethought and saying, why can't we think it like a software where we take one module and launch the second module from the first module? And in this case, what we did is, Uh, We bought a cheap rocket that only goes up to the low Earth orbit, and then our lander essentially becomes a booster and launches from the low Earth orbit because all the work that most of the work to get out of the Earth gravity is already done. And that allows us to build a really, really cheap solution to get to the moon. And no company that has been in this business would ever think about doing that. Mm -hmm. And that is what caused the things to change. Now, coming to the healthcare part, 
we did exactly the same thing. So I launched a company called Wyoming, which fundamentally, again, you and I can agree, well, I don't know about your part of the world, Sydney, even though we are from the same country, but as most people don't realize that India was really never a country. <laughs> so we all have very different languages and we have all different customs and yeah. these, to some extent, even different alphabets. So at least in my part of the country, we can't pronounce the word we, right? So when I say Wyoming, people laugh at me. It's like, what do you mean Wyoming? And it's like, it's we as in Victor. It's like, uh, that's called biome. It's like, that's a B. That's not a B. <laughs> it's called Wyoming. It's we as in Victor, I-O-M-E. So anyway, the reason I launched Wyoming was, and first of all, I'm going to tell you, why pick a name? And as a founder that you can't pronounce. And, you know, that's just, you know, it's a crazy thing. But I just fell in love with the name because the word why in French is life and omics is science. And I really wanted to look at the science of life. And that was just a, such a perfect name for what I was doing. So I said, let's go with that. If I can't pronounce it, I'm going to let the host pronounce it for me. <laughs> so Srini, how would you pronounce it? I would say Viome, but don't, don't feel bad. My dad would probably say, the same, say it the same way you do. Okay, there you have it. Um, so then coming back to it, here is very interesting. The healthcare system, again, is so, uh, uh, you know, is so vested in its own interest. And I think, you know, maybe stepping back here, once a system becomes big, it to some extent, it starts to behave like an organism. And that organism, the survival of the organism becomes the goal and the purpose goes out the window. So if you think about it, the, in our healthcare system, everyone in the healthcare system has no incentive to keep you healthy, but everybody has an incentive to keep you sick. Your doctor only gets paid when you are sick. So if somehow your doctor can find a magic bullet that keeps you healthy, guess what happens? They will get sick because they cannot make any money anymore, right? The hospital makes money when you are sick. Insurance company makes money when you are sick because by law, they have to give, give back 85% of their premium back to the patients. That means if you are healthy, they have to reduce the premium. That means they make less money. The pharmaceutical companies do not want anyone to be healthy because they love chronic diseases. Chronic diseases for them means a subscription business. As a matter of fact, you know, the surprising part is one of the CEO of a pharmaceutical company on a conference call said, the best drugs we develop are the drugs that people have to take for the rest of their life. And what, in other words, the best drugs are the ones that don't cure anything, right? Now, very interesting, two weeks ago, Goldman Sachs published a research and that only shows you how broken this industry has become. It says that now people are starting to develop the technology such as genetic, genetic editing and other ways for people to get rid of the chronic diseases. We wonder if our healthcare industry can survive where their, uh, the subscription business they used to have for all these chronic diseases, is it about to fall apart? Mm. Right. So imagine. So now, interesting thing is our understanding of human biology is completely changing in a sense that what makes us human is very different. We always believed somehow we were this unique thing as humans. And whereas from a nature's perspective, we are basically a 
walking, talking ecosystem of a microbial and uh, mostly a microbial uh, ecosystem. And I think, um, as you know, I think in the last time when you and I have talked about that, most people don't realize that we have more foreign cells in our body than human cells. But that's nothing. But when you look at from a genetic expressions perspective, our human DNA only produces about 20,000 genes, whereas our microbes that live in our gut produce about 2 million genes. That means at best, we are 1% human. And even those 1% genes, their gene expression is being controlled by the metabolization of the molecules that the um, microbes release in our blood, it changes our gene expression. And what's very interesting is that when you look at almost every single chronic disease, uh, and people talk about these chronic disease as if somehow they are really a disease, these are the names we give to certain set of symptoms, right? So we take a certain set of symptoms, we give it a name. So whether you call this chronic disease a Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer, or you call them depression or anxiety, or you call them obesity or diabetes or autoimmune disease or cancer, every one of them is simply a chronic inflammation disease. And the chronic inflammation happens when your gut microbes are not in balance. So I wanna, I'm going to give you a, a small story because that is going to reframe our discussion and reframe our understanding of what makes us human. And if you would, uh, you know, allow me to just elaborate on this story of our, my tongue-in-cheek story of how humans were created. Are you ready for it, Srini? Yeah, absolutely. So if you think about um, how humans were created, you go and start to think about that on planet Earth, the microorganisms, whether it's bacteria or viruses or fungus or yeast or mold, have been around for about three and a half billion years. And humans only evolved in the last couple of hundred thousand years. So how did human get created? And here's how I think happened. So one day, all the organisms, the bacteria and viruses and yeast and fungus all got together and said, you know, we're sick and tired of living in this Africa, uh, a small space in Africa. We want to take over the world. And they all looked at each other. And one of them says, he had an idea. What's your idea? He said, what if we can create a thing where trillions of us could live inside it? All we have to do is keep this thing healthy. We can make it crave the food we want. And this thing is going to go everywhere trying to find the things we want. It's going to go everywhere, poop everywhere. It's going to spread us around and we're going to take over the world. And they created humans. And as the humans got created, just like today, we are so afraid of artificial intelligence. And we wonder if one day artificial intelligence becomes smarter than us, what's going to happen to us humans? Guess what? Organisms start to wonder that, oh, my God, we just created this thing. And one day, humans are going to get smarter than them. What's going to happen? So they all assembled again, and they say, Master, we have a problem. What's the problem, son? He said, we just created this thing. Aren't you worried that it's going to someday become smarter than us? And Master said, not at all. How so, Master? You know, inside their cell, they think they call mitochondria. Do you know it's one of our brothers? It used to be a bacteria. And we, our brother is right inside their cell. And it is the one that provides the energy to their cell. We sitting in our gut are constantly communicating with our brother. Any point of time when we think these guys are going out of control, we shut the energy down and they're done forever. And everyone thought, master, you're absolutely brilliant. Except the other young one could not take it. He said, master, you are missing the big part. 
Do you know they're starting to develop this thing called brain? What are we going to do if the brain starts to develop and they become smarter than us and say, Masters is not to worry one bit. Remember, all of us reside in the gut, trillions of us. We put a direct connection from gut to the brain and they call that a vagus nerve. And they thought by naming it after Las Vegas, somehow that what happens in the gut is going to stay in the gut. How long are they? <laughs> what happens in the gut goes everywhere. And what I didn't tell you is the things that makes them feel good, like serotonin, we don't let them produce it. 90% of all the serotonin, we produce it ourselves. And better yet, we use all the neurotransmitters to control their behavior. We control their emotions. We control their mood. We control their decision-making. And like a good leader, we make them think they are the one who are making the decisions. We simply sit here and pull the strings. So sit back, relax. We have taken over the world. And that's how, ladies and gentlemen, the humans were created. <laughs> wow. Now, now, the truth be told, just last week, there was a research paper published in Nature. It talks about that how microbiome controls our mood and behavior and our decision-making. Right. And so it's very interesting is that a paper published on how mitochondria and microbiome are constantly communicating as we age. So everything that even though it's a tongue in cheek story, every science paper. So if you just Google um, a microbiome controlling our, our mood and it's a nature publication that came out two weeks ago. Mm. The interesting thing is you can Google Parkinson's and microbiome, Alzheimer and microbiome, depression and microbiome, cancer and microbiome. Not only the microbiome are influential and in causing cancer, whether the cancer therapy works or does not work also depends on microbiome. So there's an article the last month that came about that pancreatic cancer is caused by the uh, gut microbes moving to pancreas and shutting down the immune system causing pancreatic cancer. Mayo Clinic published research the breast cancer is caused by the microbes uh, in, the, uh, in the breast cancer tissue. So interesting thing is whether the chemotherapy works or it kills you depends on your microbiome. Whether the uh, immunotherapy works or does not work depends on your microbiome. Uh, you know, obviously, you know, as we launched Wyom, our belief was exactly that if microbiomes are responsible for chronic inflammation and chronic inflammation is responsible for all the chronic diseases, what if we can simply modulate the inflammation uh, through diet. What if we knew what is the right food for each person? And you know, if you go back and say, what a great revelation, until we realized that was done 2,400 years ago when Hippocrates said, all diseases begin in the gut. And then he said, one man's food is another man's poison. And he continued, let food be thy medicine, let thy medicine be the food. And that's exactly what we're doing. Interestingly, what we learned is um, that it turns out that it, there is no such thing as universal healthy food. A food that's good for you may not be good for me. And the worst case is even the food that's good for me today may not be good for me in three months to four months because as I change my diet, my microbes are now changing their ecosystem because when you change your uh, the food intake, you're feeding certain set of microbes and not feeding other set of microbes. And guess what happened? Suddenly the balance of the ecosystem changes. As balance of the ecosystem changes, now the things that used to be good for you are no longer good for you, right? Mm -hmm. And what we're finding is that, you know, we have now tens of thousands of people that have essentially used the Wyom service. And we learned that almost 30% of the people 
they cannot digest spinach. Spinach is harmful for them. So even though Popeye thought that spinach is good for everyone, it turns out, at least for the 30% people we know, it's actually not good. Yeah. It turns out, same thing with polyphenols. Everybody believes that things like pomegranate juice or walnuts are good for everyone. It turns out for at least 50% of the people, all of these polyphenols have allergic acid, but they don't have the gut microbiome to convert them into urolithin A, which has antioxidative fat. So for 50% of the people, it actually has no impact at all. And, you know, some of the very interesting thing that we learned, because as you may already know, that we are the only company that have the technology to be able to not only under, not only know what organisms are in your gut, we also can see how active they are, but more importantly, what they are actually producing. That means we can see if they're producing butyrate, we can see if they're producing uh, propionate, all these short-chain fatty acids that are really good for you, or they're producing LPS, which is lipopolysaccharide, which is very inflammatory, which causes inflammation. So by looking at all of the things, we are now able to see exactly what is going on inside your gut. And what we found is something very interesting, that people who are vegetarian, we always wondered how do they get their protein. And it turns out in the vegetarians, their microbes are adapting so they can turn the carbohydrates into a branch chain amino acids, which is a precursor to protein. I mean, this is a completely new way of thinking that how the microbes are taking the carbs and converting them into precursor to protein. I mean, nobody would have thought it's possible. We're seeing the microbes are producing hormones, which we thought only the human body can produce. So now we see them producing testosterone or estrogen, right? We're starting to see the things that now we can predict that people are having joint pains. We can start to see the people who have depression. And, you know, these tens of thousands of people who have gone through the Wyoming service, even though we are not solving any of the chronic diseases, we are simply focused on balancing the gut and reducing the inflammation. Our customers are telling us their depression is gone, their anxiety is gone, or their acne is gone, their eczema is gone, or they're losing weight or their autoimmune diseases is now are no longer the problem. Even though we don't focus on any of the things, it turns out as we get the in, reduce the inflammation, all the symptoms are going away. And that to me is a key. And now you would wonder how would the healthcare system react to it, similar to the education system that you talked about. Yeah. The education system is never going to adapt the technology that is going to be harmful to its, uh, itself, which is an organism, and the healthcare system is going to do the same way. Healthcare system job would be to treat you as a foreign entity, swallow you, release the antibodies, and kill you. Guess what? So what we do is in education system, if I were to start a new technology that is going to disrupt the current education system, what I would do would be to go around the system to the thing to the people who are already motivated. Homeschooling. They're looking for the best solution. So you go to the homeschooling kids who are looking for the best solution. Then you go to the private school. Then you go to the charter school. And by that time, you've created so much momentum, the system would have no chance except to adapt it. The same thing in the healthcare system. We went directly to the people who are actually suffering from these chronic diseases. And as people are starting to feel better, guess what's happening? The word is automatically spreading. And now people are saying, hey, not only I'm, you know, I may not be sick, but I don't want to be sick anymore, 
right? So they are preventatively going and taking care of themselves. And this is the way to go around the healthcare system. So healthcare system has no choice because the only person who is motivated to stay healthy is the person who is sick, not the system that is currently victimizing the uh, victimizing the people. So our healthcare system and our pharmaceutical companies have really become the parasite on humanity whose business model is depends on keeping you sick. And my job is to make sure that we go directly to consumer around the healthcare system so that we can keep these people healthy keep their gut in balance, keep their inflammation in and down, and that will allow all these symptoms to essentially disappear. So these chronic conditions that are constantly causing the people these uh, diseases uh, will essentially no longer will be the problem, mm. right? So the chronic conditions that people have uh, our current healthcare system wants to simply simply suppress them. So think of inflammation as the burner that's constantly burning, right? And then anytime a disease pops up and you hammer it down, it pops up somewhere else, right? So it's like a, uh, you know, a whack-a-mole, right? It's constantly popping up somewhere else. So people say if the chronic inflammation is the root cause of all the diseases, then why do people have different type of diseases? An interesting thing is think of a chronic inflammation is like pulling a chain, our human body is the chain. It always breaks at the weakest point. And each one of us have a different weak points. So when there is a chronic inflammation, you're constantly pulling the chain. And some people, it shows up as a inflammation in the arteries and gets the and it causes the heart disease. In some people, it causes a diabetes. In some people, it shows up as obesity. Some people, it shows up as uh, Alzheimer. And some people, it shows up as cancer. And really is underlying causes are just the inflammation. And our job is to use the food as a medicine to modulate this chronic inflammation. Wow. Wow. Um, <laughs> that was amazing. So, you know, one of the things I, I get a sense for is that there's this almost insatiable uh, curiosity and desire for learning in the way that you <laughs> live your life. And I'm wondering how you choose to seek out the information that you seek out, uh, choose the books that you choose to read and, and, you know, how you filter all of this. So again, I mean, and that's one of the things is that I think you mentioned, Srini, you are probably, as I say, one of the few people who understands that what drives the humanity forward is this intellectual curiosity. And once you lose that intellectual curiosity, you essentially become a zombie. So I always say is that, you know, whether we are parents or we are a teacher, our job is not to take the kids to the water and make them drink. Our job should be to make them thirsty because once you make them thirsty, they will find their own water and moreover, they will drink, right? So what is that? How do you create that thirst? That's called intellectual curiosity. That if you can get everyone to start thinking about why can't it be done? Why can't it be done this way? And that intellectual curiosity will drive them forward. But coming back and answering your question specifically, I work very long hours. I get up every day at 4 a.m. And first three hours of my day, I actually read all of the scientific papers in every single industry. And the way I do that is, I set up my Twitter feed uh, as a news list, and only thing in that news list is simply all the 70, 100 scientific journals. And very every morning, I'm able to flip through them and saying, what is going on in nanotechnology? What's happening in the neuroscience? What's happening in the microbiome? What's happening in every uh, you know in different technologies? 
And then it allows me to keep collecting these dots. And someday when I'm reading, I get another dot that completes a puzzle. So when I saw this technology at uh, Los Alamos National Lab, uh, which essentially they were designing for biodefense that allowed them to see every single thing that was going on inside the human body because they wanted to protect against the bio, uh, uh, bioterror. And as soon as I saw that, I'm thinking, oh, no, now I know I can solve the healthcare problem. That means because I was reading constantly about what was going on inside, that what's going on inside the gut is the key to our health. And as soon as I saw the technology that can solve, uh, that can get this, to find the solution, I was ready to start a company. And that is the key, is to constantly be reading. And once I start any company in any industry, I never read one book. Because if you read only one book, the author of that book, uh, the, their viewpoint becomes your viewpoint. If you read 20 or 30 books on a subject, then what happens is it allows you to create your own thought process that's uniquely your own, having seen the 20 different others, uh, uh, other viewpoints. So when I started Wyom, I read probably as I say, several dozen books, whether it is, you know, the human superorganism, the 10% human, the good gut, and I can just go on and on. Mm-hmm. And then I probably met with some of the top uh, microbiologists to understand what was going on. And that's where essentially I am now able to talk about the subject a uh, year and a half ago I knew nothing about. And if you ask someone about, you know, a year and a half ago, they would have thought I was a space junkie because I was always talking about the rockets and I was talking about all the helium-3 and all the other things. And now they thought, and they thought that was my born passion. And now people think I'm dis- I was born to solve the healthcare problem. And I'm thinking in the next three, four years, when I'm done with this, I'm going to move on to education and everybody's going to think that education was what I was born to solve, right? Mm-hmm. What do you do after uh, the reading each day? What's next in the in your in your routine after waking so, up? So again, uh, <laughs> so see, you went through the part that I think is the dumbest question that I get asked, right? Yeah. Which is asking people for their routines. Sure. You never want to follow the people's routine or their habits. You want to follow their thought process. And I think you and I talked about it, right? You know. Tony Robbins takes an ice bath every morning. You can take an ice bath three times a day. It's not going to make you Tony Robbins, right? What's going to make you Tony Robbins to think like Tony Robbins? So instead of asking what my routine is, you should be asking, when I read this stuff, what am I thinking? What is my thought process? How do I apply the things that I'm seeing in nanotechnology to the business that I'm currently running? How do I start thinking about it and say, gee, what does it really mean, right? So the answer is that to me, Every time I'm reading something, I'm always asking myself, what does that mean to things I am doing? But more importantly, what does it really mean to the other problems that I know the world is facing? And someday I'm going to find something that says, aha, this is the electrolysis of the solar energy. I need to now go out and start a company that is going to go out and solve the problem. Now, notice that I, every time I talk about starting a company, why do I do that? It's because I believe if you want to do a small good in the world, you start a nonprofit. But if you want to do a large good in the world, you start for profit. Because unless you're generating profit, you can't scale. Even if you're the richest man in the world, you will run out of money if you're not generating a profit. Mm-hmm. Right? So you can only do a small good in the world. So I always believe if the problem is worth solving, go out and create a profitable business so you can go out and actually help billions mm-hmm. of people around the world. Wow. Um, 
I think that makes a, a really fitting end to uh, what has been truly probably one of the most insightful and uh, eye-opening conversations I've had uh, over the last 10 years. So I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews with the Unmistakable Creative. Go for it. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Uh, is really uh, for them to be focused on how they make the people feel, not focused on what they are saying. So I would say people will forget what you say to them. They, you, they will never forget how you made them feel. So make them feel that they are valued. Make them feel that when you are with them, they are the only one that matters. When you are um, with them, respect them, treat them with respect and know that the time that they're giving you is the most valuable thing they have. So respect their time. Mm, Amazing. Well, I can't thank you enough for uh, taking the time to join us and uh, share your story and your insights with our listeners. Where can people learn more about you and your work? They wanted to come uh, so first of all, uh, they can find me on any social media, uh, on LinkedIn or Facebook or Twitter. They can also email it to me. My email is my first name, Naveen, dot, my last name, Jen, at gmail.com. And uh, they can also find me at yom.com, which is vsinvictorione.com. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Subtle results. Still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, Headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eden syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys.
and download your free copy.